The Innocence Project is an organization whose mission it is to set innocent people free who have been wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, some even on death row. So far, the Innocence Project has freed over 240 innocent people who have been wrongfully convicted. The work they do is so important, and those they help to be freed will surely agree. This week, I'm going to be diving into a case that took decades to clear up, one that the Innocence Project moved forward with the help of DNA. When this case is reinvestigated 26 years later, a sobering discovery is brought forward. Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. And welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Before I get into this week's case, let's just hear from our friends over at Horror House, True Crime, and the Macabre. Oh, hi. Hello. It's Dom. And along with my co-host, Amy, we are the hosts of Horror House, True Crime, and the Macabre. If, like us, you have a morbid curiosity with true crime, the paranormal, cults, and more, then our show may just satisfy your curiosities. We release episodes on Fridays and bonus episodes every other Wednesday. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts and you can also find us on Instagram at horrorhouse underscore pod. So all that's left to say is until next time, my friends, stay spooky. Let's get into this week's case and be reminded why the Innocence Project is so, so important. Imagine you're arrested. You've been charged with rape, sodomy, kidnapping, and criminal possession of a weapon. Police, they come and get you. They handcuff you. They read you your rights and they stuff you into the back of a police car. They then send you off to jail where you await trial. You hold on to hope thinking surely they lack the evidence, right? Wrong. No evidence is ever brought to light that you committed these horrific crimes. There's no DNA, no clothing, fibers, fingerprints, footprints, photographs, or anything to tie you to this crime. And yet you are found guilty and told you will have to spend the next 16 to 48 years behind bars for a crime you didn't commit. Actually, the DNA evidence says someone else is involved, but this gets flossed over. Now imagine this happens to you when you're only 19 years old and you spend the next 26 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. That sure is hard to imagine, isn't it? Saying goodbye to your 20s, 30s, and almost all of your 40s as a free person, those are crucial years in life for developing family and work life. This would also mean no Christmases, no New Year's, no birthdays, nope. Nothing. You're just waiting in a cell every day, getting older and older. The one life you have is being spent in prison for a crime you didn't commit. I don't think I can even come close to fathoming the feeling of injustice one would feel in that situation. Someone who has no trouble knowing that feeling is Greg Counts. That's exactly what happened to him. There is one detail about this case that makes it stand alone in a sea of wrongful convictions. But first, I'm going to start at the beginning. 
On the morning of January 18, 1991, a woman flags down a police car in New York City. She looks like she has been through something horrific. This woman tells police she was kidnapped by three men at knife point and driven to a park, then raped and sodomized by all three men. It is a absolutely brutal and violent crime she is describing. Luckily, this woman could tell police who the men were. She said she knew them by name. She said it was 19-year-old Greg Counts and 21-year-old Van Dyke Perry, along with one other man whose name is not released as he was never arrested. Greg and Van Dyke, they were arrested. They were both picked up by the end of January. They were charged with sodomy, rape, criminal possession of a weapon, and kidnapping. I couldn't find a lot of information on this third man, only that he was never arrested and police did know who he was. So whether that means police couldn't locate him or what, I'm not really sure, but the woman said she was kidnapped by these men and forced into a brown car. This brown car matches the description of one that this third man had. This was his car. The woman said she was sexually assaulted both inside the vehicle and outside the vehicle. This would mean there would be a lot of DNA evidence in this vehicle if police were to test it, right? Well, we'll talk about that later. The woman who remains nameless in all sources, we, we don't know her name, she stays anonymous. The woman, she does undergo a rape kit and there is semen recovered from her, but it doesn't match Van Dyke or Greg or the third man, and they are still put on trial. Not the third man, but Van Dyke and Greg. 1992, the trial is underway. The woman gets up on the stand, and she tells the court that in 1990, herself, her boyfriend, and their two children all lived in a home with another girl who was a teenager, and this teenager had a boyfriend, and his boyfriend was Van Dyke Perry. The woman said her boyfriend, who was a recovering drug addict, slipped and started using again. Not only was he using, but he was also selling drugs out of the home alongside Van Dyke Perry. From the sounds of it, the woman's boyfriend was getting the drugs to sell from Van Dyke, Greg, and this third man. Eventually, this woman's boyfriend owed them a lot of money for these drugs, but the boyfriend, he wouldn't pay. This led to major trouble. It was in September of that year, 1990, that the woman's boyfriend was involved in a physical altercation with the three men he was selling drugs with or for because of the outstanding balance he owed and wasn't paying. The woman believes that's why her home was robbed just a few months later. And after this, the woman's boyfriend shot Van Dyke Perry in the foot when Van Dyke again confronted the woman's boyfriend, probably about the money. This brings us up to January 18th, 1991, the date of the incident. The woman said she was abducted at knife point by the three men and forced into a vehicle, that brown vehicle, as she was leaving her home. The men then demanded she tell them where her boyfriend was, but she wouldn't say. She said she was then sexually assaulted as the car was in motion and also taken out of the vehicle and sexually assaulted in Central Park. According to her, two of these men were Van Dyke and Greg, and the third man was never arrested, even though police knew who he was, which is why we'll refer to him as the third man. 
This woman claimed all three of these men had raped her multiple times. She said the reason behind this brutal and vicious attack was that her boyfriend owed these men money for drugs and had not paid. After the attack, that's when she was set free and then flagged down a police car. That exact day, the woman's boyfriend was arrested, but for the shooting incident that had happened a few months earlier when he shot Van Dyke in the foot. What became interesting about this is that her boyfriend was never charged for this shooting. He was just let off for it, and Greg and Van Dyke were being sent to prison for crimes committed against the man's girlfriend. So there is a question in the air here. Was this man let off of these charges because of what Van Dyke and Greg had been accused of. The defense did argue that the victim could be setting Van Dyke and Greg up to aid in the charges being dropped against her boyfriend for the shooting. The defense also wanted to point out that the victim in this case is very unreliable and was not a credible source, most likely due to her drug addiction at the time. No physical evidence was brought forward, no DNA, no nothing. Police didn't even search the brown car of the third man's that the victim was allegedly raped in, even though that car's whereabouts was no secret. In fact, I read it was in the yard of the third man's home the entire time. And the entire back seat consisted of a large speaker. There was no room for three men and one woman in that car because the back seat was fully occupied. Also, at the time, the car wasn't even able to operate. It said it was inoperable at this time. Why didn't police search that car for hair, semen, blood, fingerprints, or anything that could lock in a guilty verdict? Anything to say that this woman was in this car and this crime happened. That car would have been loaded with physical and forensic evidence and it was a known crime scene and yet it just went untouched, not even looked at. Police didn't even go to the car as far as I'm aware. Didn't even look in the window, nothing. Let's talk about the forensic evidence that was brought up in court. The sperm found on the victim did not match either of the men being accused of the rape. The woman's legal team said that's because it belonged to her boyfriend because just before her abduction, they had consensual sex. This didn't track for me for a few reasons. One, she told the doctor at the hospital her and her boyfriend used condoms. Two, it was never proven to be the boyfriend's sperm. No DNA match was conducted as far as I'm aware. And three, had she been raped by all three men who abducted her, there would be physical evidence somewhere. And yet not a shred was ever brought up in court. Nothing was found. Nothing, not a zero zilch. No physical evidence from these men were found on her. Also, the woman had inconsistencies in her story. One of the major ones was the location of the sexual assault. Before the trial, she had reported the rape had happened both in the car and at Morningside Park. Then at trial, she testified it was both in the car and at Central Park. I did, however, look up the distance between these two parks, and they are very close. Uh, I could see how someone could use these interchangeably in some situations or just plain get them mixed up, especially when there's a traumatic violent crime being committed against them. 
It's not like these parks were on completely different sides of, of New York. They're very close. The woman also said she had been punched in the face during the attack by Greg Counts multiple times. Now, Greg at the time of the attack was a large man. I'm talking over six feet tall, 260 pounds. Yet the doctor who examined the woman after the attack found no bruising or blood on her face or body indicating she had been punched in the face or violently handled. The jury had reached a verdict on March 16, 1992. It seemed the lack of forensic and physical evidence wasn't enough to override the victim's testimony, and both men were found guilty on all charges except criminal possession of a weapon. Greg Counts, who was only 19 years old at the time, was sentenced to 16 to 48 years in prison. Van Dyke Perry, who was 21 years old at the time, he was arrested and sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. I am unsure why Greg got a harsher sentence than Van Dyke, and perhaps that would be answered had I been able to locate a full court transcript. But if I were to guess, I'd say he was described as more of the violent one. The two men are sent to prison, and that's where Van Dyke Perry stayed until his release in November 9th, 2001, when he was released on parole, having served 11 years. Life after prison was not easy for him. Even though he was free, his conviction hung over him like a dark cloud. Gaining employment was not easy with a criminal record. He ran away from New York and found solace on the Pacific coast. But even then, he struggled. Greg counts he was still in prison, though, and he was serving the rest of his sentence. Greg, he never, ever admitted to having anything to do with the crime he was convicted of. And he also refused, would not go to a sex offender program he was supposed to be going to while in prison. He never stopped pleading his innocence. He was adamant. He had nothing to do with this crime. He was not a sex offender. I'm sure it's because of this non-compliant attitude that Greg found himself in solitary confinement. Being in solitary confinement gave him an opportunity to educate himself. I didn't know this, but apparently you can have books in solitary. And Greg, he did have a book he found in the prison library. And not just any book. The book Greg had was titled Actual Innocence. This book would prove to be very significant to Greg and Van Dyke. Written by two co-founders of The Innocence Project, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield, and also reporter Jim Dwyer. Actual Innocence is a book containing true stories of people who were wrongfully convicted. As Greg read story after story, he knew he had one last chance to clear his name. Greg sat down and wrote The Innocence Project, asking if they could please test the DNA found on the victim in his case. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never heard of a guilty person doing this before. If he was guilty, the last thing he would ever want is that DNA to be tested. This alone speaks volumes. In 2012, the Innocence Project jumped on board and took on Greg's case. They started by seeking access to the rape kit and clothing taken from the victim back in 1991. Once they gained access to the evidence, that meant they could start building a case from there. That DNA was exactly what they needed. I'm actually surprised it didn't get lost. You can't see me. I'm doing air quotes over lost. That seems to happen in 
quite a few cases I've read about. Oh, we went to go test the evidence, but the police lost it. Oh, they lost it. Anyways, didn't happen in this case. The Innocence Project got a hold of the evidence. By 2014, the prosecution was asked if it would be okay for the DNA to be tested, and they agreed. When I read that, I was thinking, why does the prosecution have to agree to that? What would have happened if they said no? Luckily, they said yes, and wait until you hear the results. In 2015, the DNA found on the victim's underwear, which was sperm, was tested and put through an FBI database to find out who it belonged to. We already know it didn't belong to Greg or Van Dyke, but who did it belong to? The prosecution had argued it came from the victim's boyfriend during consensual sex, but that was never confirmed. When the DNA was put through the FBI database, it did not come back as the victim's boyfriend, but it came back as belonging to a dead man. In 1991, though, this man, however, he was alive and he was 40 years old, which would have made him around 60 years old when he died in 2011. Was this man responsible for the horrific crime committed against the victim? How did his sperm get on her underwear if not? Every year, Greg is getting closer and closer to the truth. By 2016, the victim was tracked down and shown an image of the man whose sperm was found in her underwear. They wanted to tell her that they got the results. They tested the DNA. They got the results back and this was the man. So they asked if he could possibly be the third man who was present the night of her abduction and sexual assault. And I believe it was investigators from the New York County District Attorney's Office asking her these questions, not the police. Because remember, the police knew the identity of the third man. But for some reason, he was never arrested, which is still odd to me. I I have my theories on that. But anyways, the woman, she looks at this photo and she says she didn't know the man. She doesn't recognize him at all. When the investigator presses her for more answers, she tells the investigators that back in 1991, she was addicted to drugs, she was living on the street, and she was making money through sex work. She said it was totally possible that the sperm tested from her underwear belonged to that man they were showing her because he had used her services, or as she said, they hooked up. This was, of course, putting everything into question now, and the woman refused to say anything else or answer any more questions. Is anyone else seeing how each step to move forward takes a year or longer? 2012, the Innocent Project takes on the case, locates DNA evidence from the crime. 2014, two years later, permission to test the DNA is approved. One year later in 2015, DNA tested and results have come back as a man who's now dead. 2016, the victim is tracked down and shown a photo of this man's DNA found on her underwear from the day of the crime. Everything is, this, every, it's like every little step, every little step takes a year. But this brings us up to 2017. The Innocence Project and New York County's District Attorney's Convictions Integrity Program start working together. They become a team working to reinvestigate this case. By August of 2017, Greg Counts was able to be released on parole because of this reinvestigation happening. He had not been a free man since his arrest in 1991, and now 
this day, in August of 2017, he's walking outside of prison walls, a free man 26 years later. Investigators then go to find this third man who was allegedly involved. Greg's released on parole. They want to find this third man. So investigators they go find this third man and he tells them what he knows. He tells them the brown car he had wasn't working. And even if it was, it had a massive speaker taking up the entire backseat. This was a two-door small car, by the way, meaning even if it was working, then two people maximum would be able to, to go for a ride in this car because there was a massive speaker taking up the entire back seat. This was essentially a two a two-seater car at this point that didn't even run. And this man said that he has been living with the fear of going to jail for this entire time for that crime that he didn't commit because he was named in it. He knew he was named in it. And he had been terrified this entire time that he was living in fear essentially for the last 26 years. He also didn't lie about Van Dyke Greg and himself having a physical altercation with the woman's boyfriend over drugs and that money was owed to them from that woman's boyfriend. He didn't lie about that at all. He also recalled that the woman's boyfriend had shot Van Dyke in the foot. The day of truth was April 24th in 2018, 27 years later. The woman, she is questioned about the crime again. An investigator and a district attorney pay her a visit to her home. And finally, the truth comes out. The woman says in 1991, this is what really happened. Her boyfriend at the time had been forcing her to have sex for money on the streets. It seemed like both her and her boyfriend were addicted to drugs at this time. And from what I gather, it was crack that they were using. That day when she came home, she didn't have any money. And I read that the woman said that her and a quote unquote John, which would be a client, had smoked crack all day. She had sex with this John and the guy never paid her. When she got home and had no money to give her boyfriend, he was mad. In the past, this would result in beating her for this. This day, he told her that if she accused Van Dyke and Greg and the third guy of rape, then their money problems would go away. He then concocted the story and rehearsed her on it and then sent her out to find police. During the original trial back in 1992, the courts actually had to issue a warrant for her to testify because she wasn't going to or she didn't even show up when she was supposed to. They had to go and find her and issue a material witness warrant and essentially make her come to court. She didn't want to go. She was worried about perjury because she knew everything she was saying was a lie. She did say she feels remorse and that it haunts her, having had two innocent men convicted and ruining their lives. On April 24, 2018, after finally telling the truth, she did say, quote, don't think this doesn't haunt me, unquote. Four days later, she speaks to investigators again, and she says this, quote, what can I talk about except the shame that I have? I mean, what else is there to ask me? It never happened, unquote. 
I got both those quotes from the National Registry for Exonerations, which I have linked in my show notes. Now that she has finally told the truth nearly three decades later, both Van Dyke, Perry, and Greg Counts are exonerated. Now they are completely cleared of these crimes that they never even committed. May 7th, 2018, Greg Counts cried in court the day he and Van Dyke were exonerated. Both men were emotional at the outcome. I found a news clip of the moment and I have linked it in my show notes. It is very, very powerful when you know the story behind it. The day Van Dyke was exonerated, he told the public this. It's never going to be over. The reason why? Because it tormented my life and it's my past. And when he speaks, he speaks with conviction. He also said this. I'd like to thank my lawyers. I'm very grateful for them helping me get my freedom back. The wrongful conviction destroyed my life. When it was Greg Count's turn to speak, he said, I can't live off hate. Nobody can live off hate. If I can waste 10 minutes being angry, I'd rather be 10 minutes happy than 10 minutes angry. That's wise as hell. I'm going to try to follow Greg's philosophy. That is amazing that he said that. That is amazing. 26 years of his life was stolen from him because of a lie. And that's what he says. I can't live off hate. Nobody can live off hate. That is so powerful. He is just, he seems like such an amazing man. That same day, Greg Counts thanked God that his family always stood behind him through the entire process. Greg Counts just seems like such a thankful, grateful, amazing man. And I, it's just so sad. It, it's so sad that anyone is convicted of a crime they didn't commit. But Greg Counts lost 26 years of his life and he just seems like one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Greg Counts appeared in a Vice documentary about the wrongful conviction, and he said he's very happy to be free, obviously, but at the same time, he finds it hard to navigate all this freedom. Everybody he knows either has a job or has kids, and he doesn't have that because he's been in prison. How would he have those things? He also said he'll leave his house and go walking around, but he's got nowhere to go, and he will go back to his house and just go sit in his room. He feels comfortable in his room, probably because he's been in a cell for most of his life. He also said that he has a fear of small white women. So if I were to guess, I would say the woman who had him arrested, the woman who lied and had him in prison for 26 years was a small white woman. And he says now every time he sees a small white woman, he gets he gets really scared. Um, And he said he's probably more scared than her. He is just absolutely terrified that he's going to be accused of something again. And he also said that he went into prison when he was 19 years old. He comes out at what, 45, 46, 47, whatever age he was when when he came out. And he said it's like he's stuck in the mindset of a 19 year old he hasn't grown he hasn't he hasn't done the things that people who haven't been incarcerated for most of their life have done so integrating back into society into this free life has been very challenging for him and his family said that he still has habits 
uh, as, as someone who has been incarcerated for a long time, such as making a single sheet of paper towel last longer, as if you only get one piece of paper towel like he'll fold it up and he'll rip off just a little bit just what he needs to clean up the mess or he'll rinse it out and he'll he'll reuse it for as long as he can van dyke perry he was released from prison back in 2001 serving about 11 years life after prison for him was also very difficult he was treated like a sex offender and when he failed to register as one he landed himself in jail again twice once for two weeks and once for six months Again, for doing nothing because he was never a sex offender. This followed him. I couldn't even imagine how hard it was for him to find a job and support his family with that conviction hanging over him. He did eventually start his own landscaping business, got married, and had six children, which is just amazing. But unfortunately, the torment from his past, it never left him. Watching him speak, you can see he is haunted by this nightmare. After his exoneration, Van Dyke was awarded $5 million for his wrongful imprisonment, 1.5 of that from New York State Court of Claims, and 3.5 from the city of New York. I think that that is totally fair. If anything, he should have gotten way more. I've heard of some cases getting $1 million per year, so he should have about $11 million. As for Greg Counts, I have yet to see a settlement for him which makes me really sad. I want him to get $26 million. I want him to have a million dollars for every year he was in prison, wrongfully convicted. I think that's what he is owed. I mean, it will never bring back those years that he missed, but it's a start for the city to compensate him. The man was in prison for 26 mother flipping years for a crime he didn't commit. He deserves to be compensated handsomely I hope that he gets it I really hope that he gets compensated and if I hear anything I will do an update for sure because I feel like it's gonna happen it's gonna happen I hope he and Van Dyke never have to work another day in their lives I hope that they can live out a full life of passion projects and children and grandchildren and birthday parties and family vacations and whatever else brings them joy it seems like family is a is a huge part of these men's life. Family is a, is a really big, important part of their lives. As for the woman who lied all those years ago and committed perjury, giving that false testimony, claiming she had been raped by three men when she was not, well, there's a statute of limitations on her crime and she was never convicted or held accountable for what she had done. USA Today published an article on Van Dyke and Greg's exoneration. And in this article, it shed some light on why perhaps police were so quick to arrest the two men. A senior staff attorney with the Innocence Project told USA Today this, This case paints a dark picture of the criminal justice system in New York City, especially at the time and continuing today. He also says, like so many other cases that have come to light in recent years, these young black men were aggressively prosecuted and given lengthy prison sentences with very little care for finding the truth. Luckily, the Innocence Project, it does amazing work, as we've just heard. Just looking at this case alone. I'm amazed. And to think they have done this over 240 times successfully is both heartbreaking, 
because so many people are wrongfully convicted and also heartwarming that there are people in this world who dedicate themselves to freeing the wrongfully convicted. I have linked the Innocence Project's website in my show notes, and if you follow that link, you will find they have a donate button on their page if you feel like supporting a noble cause. That concludes this week's case. I am definitely going to be looking into more of these cases and covering them as well as promoting the Innocence Project as often as I can. Head on over to hellno underscore a true crime podcast on Instagram or TikTok for weekly updates. Please rate the podcast on whatever app you are listening on. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 